I'm Jake Thompson, and this is the Better Than Yesterday podcast. This is the Better Than Yesterday podcast, your source for weekly interviews with the inspiring, the gritty, the successful competitors in life who are striving to be better than yesterday. I'm your host, Jake Thompson. I'm the Chief Encouragement Officer at Compete Every Day, and here each and every week, bringing on competitors to share how they do their best every single day. Their stories are inspiring. Even more important for us is we like to share actionable tips and takeaways that you, our listener, our amazing members of our community can start applying in your own journey to be better than you were yesterday. That's our goal each and every week. This week's show, I get to welcome Alan Stein Jr. Alan Stein has an incredible career in sports and now as a successful corporate speaker. He's a veteran basketball performance coach, corporate speaker, podcast host of the Pure Sweat Basketball Podcast Show, and social media influencer. He spent the last 15 years working with some of the highest performing athletes on the planet, including NBA stars Kevin Durant, and had the opportunity to work with this this year's recent number one overall pick, Markel Fultz. Alan is focused on helping people develop genuine leadership, authentic team cohesion, and true mental toughness. We get into his story today. We get into what makes the great athletes great. Take away their talent. Take away the God-given ability that they have. What drive, what focus, what, what do they actually do? that makes them better. There's a lot of players in the NBA that have equal skill sets. They're born with the same amount of talent, but why does this player succeed leaps and bounds over this player? Alan gets into the specifics of what separates those individuals. And then we talk on a personal level. What does he do to challenge himself? What is he doing to stay sharp on a day in and day out basis in terms of his mindset, in terms of what activities he participates in so that He is continuing to level up not only his life, but the life of his family and those he chooses to compete alongside. I think you're really going to enjoy this show. Let me welcome to the show this week's guest, Alan Stein Jr. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Man, we got connected through Heroic Public Speaking, Michael and Amy Port's program, and I've been a big fan of your work, man, since then, getting to follow along what you're about. Before we dive into your story, uh, give everybody a little bit of background, who you are, where you're from. Sure, and the feeling's very mutual, man. I love what you're doing and uh, always appreciate having conversations with like-minded folks, so this will be fun. Uh, The easiest way to say, I've been in the basketball performance space as a basketball strength and conditioning coach uh, for a little over 15 years, focusing mostly on the youth and high school areas, and had an opportunity uh, to work with two really prestigious schools here in the D.C. area, which is where I'm from, uh, which opened doors to groups like Nike and Jordan Brand and USA Basketball. So uh, throughout my journey as a performance coach, I was very, very fortunate to be able to observe firsthand some of the best players and coaches on the planet. And that really helped mold my philosophy and methodology, not only as a basketball performance coach, uh, but as someone that was really fascinated with leadership, 
uh, with team cohesion, uh, how to build winning cultures, about creating habits, uh, and and certainly mindset. And I decided really right around the time that you and I met at, at HPS uh, that I wanted to expand my my platform and my message beyond the game of basketball. And I've really been focused on doing uh, more corporate speaking and workshops and teaching these tenets of leadership and teamwork and culture, uh, but all through the lens of someone that has spent his life in the game of basketball. So uh, I'll never leave the game completely. Uh, It's very important to me to continue to serve players and coaches because the game has been so good to me. I want to continue to give back, but I'm really excited about this new chapter in my life uh, about teaching these tenets and pillars and and foundational principles uh, to groups and businesses and organizations. Uh, I love it, man. Have you found a a big difference in terms of the non-athlete versus the athlete when you're approaching them with the same message? I know you're going to be able to share bits and pieces from a sports-specific standpoint with the players that you've worked with, but when you're getting into the corporate space, how have you seen them receive that sports message if they aren't, say, uh, someone they would consider themselves athletic or even competitive? So far, the message has resonated and been very well received. And what I found uh, for those that don't consider themselves hyper competitive or current athletes, the vast majority of people I've come in contact with have participated in sports in some time in their life. It may be when they were in elementary school or middle school or sometimes high school. Uh, and then another portion still consider themselves sports fans. You know, they root for the local, you know, the, their professional team, whether it's football or baseball or basketball. Uh, but I found that even folks, that don't live in the sports world still having a respect and appreciation for what athletes and coaches have gone through in the same way that I've never been involved, you know, uh, in, in acting or in music, but I have a tremendous amount of respect for folks that are the best at what they do in each one of those different genres. So, so far it's been well-received, but I also realize, you know, as a speaker, first of all, I don't want to pigeonhole myself as being the quote unquote basketball guy and just telling basketball stories. So I make sure that only a portion of what I talk about is through the lens of a basketball performance coach. Everything else I talk about is through the lens of a 41 year old amicably divorced father of three so that I can still relate to folks that aren't as interested in sports. And even when I do tell a basketball story about a Kobe Bryant or, or a coach K I make sure to paint the picture and connect the dots to increase the perceived relevance for anyone. I mean, if they don't even know who Kobe Bryant is, I'll make sure that they still get a powerful takeaway from that story. So that's one of the things that I've really had to focus on uh, as I'm entering this corporate space is to make sure that that I can have a message that resonates with everyone, even if they aren't as big of a basketball junkie as I've been. That's awesome. And so let's <laughs> flash back a little bit. You, I'm assuming you started playing basketball at an early age and played through high school, college. You wanted to get into coaching at that point. Is that kind of how the journey started? It, it sure did. You know, it's funny. My career's had so many different iterations, and basketball was absolutely without question my very first passion. I believe I played on my first recreation team in kindergarten, and I was fortunate that I played a multitude of sports and did a lot of activities. So I played football and baseball and and street hockey. I rode BMX bikes and skateboarded. I did martial arts. I did a lot of different things and I enjoyed those activities, but nothing ever compared to basketball as far as a first love. So I knew at an early age 
that I wanted to be involved in the sport for as long as I could. And I was fortunate enough, I did play in high school and was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to play at, it was Elon College at the time. It's now Elon University, because uh, I'm so old, I went there a long time ago. Uh, so I was fortunate to play college basketball and knew that I wanted to be connected to the game once I was uh, done college. Uh, and I thought I was gonna take the conventional route of just being a teacher and a coach. Uh, but as I got into more of the teaching aspect in college, I realized I was not as passionate about teaching school as I was about teaching basketball and, and teaching performance. So uh, my parents were both elementary educators and I also learned at an early age that if you're going to be a teacher, you have to be all in. You owe it to the, the students that you work with to be 100% passionate and, and committed to the teaching craft. And I knew that I wasn't. So I bailed on that and decided to become a performance coach. And that was really when I found my next major passion, which was improving performance, which at the time I was really heavily focused on the physical side, on improving basketball athleticism, on helping players run faster and jump higher. It wasn't until later that I started to appreciate that uh, performance is just as much about the mind and mindset and mental toughness as it is about the physical. So that was kind of the next iteration as I continued to grow and mature. So it started with just basketball and then started going into performance, primarily physical, and then started focusing much more on the, the mental side of performance. And then as I continued to get older and hopefully wiser and with more experience, I realized that basketball was simply a platform for me to do much bigger things, which was be a positive role model uh, for boys and girls and, and to teach them life lessons through the game of basketball. So uh, that's the next iteration where basketball simply became the platform and the vehicle, but my purpose was much bigger, which was to have a, an influential impact on these young people to make them better at whatever it was they were going to do in life. And then, as we've already talked about, kind of the fourth or fifth iteration was taking that same concept and broadening it well beyond uh, the court and trying to share these same life lessons and tenets of success and happiness with folks that aren't in the basketball bubble. So that's been my my journey. And it's again, it's it's most of it has come uh, as I've become more mature and hopefully wiser. I, I realize that as awesome as the game of basketball is. It really is. It's just a vehicle to get inside somebody's mind and somebody's heart. And again, I'm very thankful to have had that opportunity. Was there a specific jumping off experience interaction with a player or coach that, that led to those different pivot points of first from the physical focus to, man, I've, I really want to work on the mental side of this game and then transitioning again and again throughout this process? Or has it been little hints and pieces along the road that you've just started to piece together like a puzzle of what best fits you in the long term? Definitely the latter. I don't remember of any specific points. Uh, it was primarily just through normal growth and maturation and new experiences, certain light bulbs going off. And, you know, first was the light bulb of, I don't want to be a teacher and a coach. I just want to do basketball 24 seven. So that light bulb went off. And then, you know, as I started really studying and experiencing and diving into the performance work, uh, and was so focused on just getting bigger, faster, and stronger, uh, it took a little while before the light bulb went off that, hey, none of this stuff's going to be very effective if you don't have the right mindset or you're not mentally tough or you can't live in the present moment. Uh, so then I started having a, a real infatuation with studying that portion of it. And then again, as I I would never use the word master because I'm still trying to master the fundamentals in all of these different areas. But as I become uh, much more equipped on the physical and the mental side, that's when it dawned on me that, hey, knucklehead, if the only thing that you're doing is making kids faster and stronger and better on the court – 
you're really selling yourself short and you're selling them short. You can actually have much bigger impact on their lives. And, and again, that's just coming with age. And, you know, I'm, I'm a very proud father. I have twin sons that are seven and a daughter that's five. And that was certainly another light bulb moment when I became a father and had my own children. That's when it really cemented the fact that, you know, hey, basketball is going to end for everyone at some point in time. And for the vast majority of people, it ends at, in high school. What kind of impact can you have past that? You know, what can, and, and that's why I'm so sensitive now to making sure that my kids are doing a lot of sports and activities, but it's all about the process and it's about them learning how to be good teammates and learning how to work hard and learning how to be accountable. It has nothing to do with how many games they're winning or how many points they're scoring. That stuff's irrelevant and no one's going to remember that stuff 20 years from now. But if the sports they're playing and the coaches they're learning from can plant seeds in them that are going to help them become, you know, well-adjusted, uh, selfless, uh, kind, contributing people in this world – then, then sports is is one of the best platforms to do that and to teach that. And I've always felt that. And and I've always felt too that if you if you only relegate your education to what you learn in school, you're going to be very limited. I mean, I, I've always believed that sports is one of the best teachers that we have. And it's always frustrating when some folks on the education side don't believe that, that they believe just the academic side is what's most important. And that is an important piece, but you know, uh, I'd be hard pressed to say that most of the lessons I've learned in my life weren't within a few degrees of sport. How do you, from that standpoint, I, I, I had a thought of where I wanted to go. I want to follow on this conversation for a little bit. How do you deal then when working with youth sports and, and highly skilled players, those helicopter type parents? that maybe take away from those lessons that youth is learning from a larger team aspect because the parent has their own agenda? One thing as a parent I've learned, and, and anyone listening that has children knows, that there is no handbook and there is no right way. I mean, we can certainly uh, get together and have some discussions on some best practices and some things that have worked. But, you know, uh, I look back on my own childhood and some of the ways that my parents raised me, uh, I use with my own children. In other ways, I have a very different uh, mindset and philosophy. So that part's okay. So one part I'm always very conscious of, I would never tell anyone how to parent their child. So whenever I'm talking about parenting in sports, I'm talking about behavior, not about personality. So how someone chooses to parent their child is completely up to them. But I know from a coaching vantage point and as a father that yes, as you just mentioned, there are certain behaviors that parents exhibit in sports that I believe are very disruptive to the growth of their child. And as a parent as well, I know that they're very well-intentioned, that they love their child more than anything in the world, the same way that I love mine. And they're doing what they believe is best for their child. Problem is they don't know. And I say that very respectfully. Most of the times they're very misguided. What they think is best for their child, as far as sport is concerned, is, is as I just said, very misguided. So I try to use um, my, my platform, if you will, to be very outspoken about what parents should be doing from a sporting standpoint. And uh, again, I always make sure that I draw that line in the sand that I'm not telling anyone how to raise their child, but I'm telling them through my own observation of almost 20 years in the business of what they can be doing to make sure their child gets the most out of sport. And perfect example uh, with my kids, as young as they are, I believe it's never too early to start planting seeds. And uh, kids at that age are, are like sponges. They, they soak up a lot more than we give them credit for. But my kids, anytime they're going to have a practice or a game or an activity, all I ask them is that you have fun, 
that you be a good listener and you, you listen to your coach and do whatever your coach says, that you work as hard as you possibly can, give your best effort, and that you're a good teammate. You make somebody, at their age, I use terminology like make somebody else smile. You know, when you get to high school, it's, you know, make sure you're doing something to make a teammate better. But those are the only four things that, that I want my children to do every time they take the court or every time they take the field. And I believe that if they do those things, everything else will fall into place. And for me, when parents are worried about or focusing on anything other than those four things, that's when we start to have a problem. When they're worried about how much time their kid plays or how many points their kid scores or how many shots they get or whether they win or lose or, <coughs> excuse me, if every kid's playing the same amount, parents are getting caught up in the wrong things. And uh, again, uh, I think that ends up lessening the enjoyment and experience for the kids participating. And I know for fact, statistically, that most kids quit sports by the age of 13. And the number one reason that they quit is from negative adult interference. And that's the part that's crazy is this interference, as I said, is very well intended. These parents, they're trying to do the best they can. They love their children. They're trying to you know, uh, support them. But in my opinion, they're, they're going about it the wrong way in many cases. Wow. Man, okay, so switching gears for a lot of our listeners. I know we've got a lot of listeners that have children and, and can absolutely relate to a lot of that. For our younger listeners that don't have kids, you've worked with some of the biggest names in basketball. I mean, I, I laugh that right on your homepage or on your website is you and KD. And one of your best stories that I love and I've heard you tell online in numerous aspects is about Kobe. What have you found in your experience – has led them, besides talent, to be so great? Sure. And, you know, I always want to make sure that I'm fully transparent. And so KD happens to be a guy that, a player that I met when he was 14 years old. So I met KD very early in the process. And uh, Markel Fultz, who was the recent number one pick in the NBA draft for the 76ers, is another young man that I met when he was in eighth grade. So a couple of the guys that I have stories of, uh, I spent significant time with in their formative years when they were younger. Then some of the others, Kobe being a perfect example, uh, I never had a chance to work or coach Kobe. I just had a chance to observe him firsthand uh, during one of his skills academies. So uh, I'm an extremely observant person. You know, if you can give me just a few minutes to watch someone and study them, uh, you know, I feel that like I can pull a lot from that. And that. Kobe Bryant Skills Academy, where I got to watch him work out and I got to watch him uh, throughout the camp and interacting with the players, I, I picked up a ton of stuff that that I believe is what makes him so special. And, and no one would argue that you know he was born with certain genetic predispositions of having a lot of talent and being very athletic and certainly was raised in a basketball family. His dad was a pro. You know He grew up overseas where they put much more emphasis on fundamentals. So there's a lot of things that have gone into Kobe's success. But what I had a chance to observe firsthand was he never gets bored with the basics that as good as he is. And, you know, I mean, he's a, arguably a top three or five player of all time in the game. He never thought he was bigger than the basics and he always worked on mastering his fundamentals. And I've never seen a player that has uh, his type of work ethic and his precision when it comes to his footwork and his mechanics. I mean, he made sure that every workout he went through was meticulous and that he did everything as perfectly as he was capable of, as hard as he was capable of, and he never tried to skip steps. He was very process oriented. And, you know, my lesson that I pull from that is, you know, I mean, there were, there were several years where he was without question the best player on the planet. 
you know, I, I assume most people think LeBron has that torch now, but if we look back a few years, I mean, it was definitely Kobe. And if the best player in the game of basketball in the entire world can commit to doing a handful of basics and fundamentals consistently through effort and precision when training, then everybody should be doing the same thing. And that, you know, that experience, and it's crazy, it's already been a decade. That was 2007 that I had a chance to observe him. It, uh, you know, that's something that makes him very, very special and unique. And that's kind of the theme of a lot of my talks or what the best of the best do during unseen hours. And the big takeaway is almost all of the things these successful players and coaches are doing, they're basic in premise, but they're not easy to do. And just because something's basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy. Because if it was easy, then everyone else would be doing it. But committing to these things and doing the little things that end up making a big difference Everyone wants to skip those because they, they want the outcome. They want what's hot and what's flashy and what's sexy, and they just want to skip over the basics. But the basics have always worked, and the basics will always work, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about basketball or business. So I, I think the biggest lesson I've learned from these guys is commit to the basics, do the little things with excellence every single day, and focus on the process. I love that. I love that. Well, how In your own life – what are you constantly doing to stay on top and stay mentally sharp and on edge so that when you go deliver as a speaker or you're brought in to do some performance training, you're on top of your game and, and nothing's kind of gotten rusty, I would say? For me, the number one thing to do is to live present, is to focus on the present moment. And, I, and with saying that, it's without question my biggest challenge in life, that living present is a struggle. And, and living present means we're, we're not really consumed with the past and we're not too worried about the future. We're focused on today and the acronym WIN, W-I-N, what's important now. And if you're really process-oriented, staying in the present moment uh, is essential to not only happiness, but to fulfillment and to success and everything else that we're all chasing in this world. Uh, so for me, I'm at a point now where I believe I have a heightened enough sense of awareness that I know when I'm not living in the present moment. And the trigger for me is just saying, Alan, be where your feet are. Be where your feet are. Be where your feet are. So perfect example. Right now, you and your listeners have my full undivided attention. I am present at this moment. My feet are planted in my office, and so is my heart, so is my mind, and you have my full attention. The moment this interview is over, then I will shift to whatever's next on my plate, and I'll be where my feet are then. And as a parent, when I'm with my children, I'm with my children. I'm, I'm not on my phone. I'm not thinking about work. I'm being where my feet are. Now, as I say that, that's the ultimate goal. Uh, like everybody else listening to this, I'm far from perfect. So there are times when I'm with my children and I'm checking my phone or I'm worried about the talk I have to give the next day. But my reminder is once I'm aware of that, Alan, be where your feet are. Don't worry about it, man. You can get back to that later. Focus on your kids. Connect with your kids or whatever it is that I'm supposed to be focusing on. And, and I found that that's really helped me. So if I'm rehearsing for a talk that I'm going to give tomorrow, I make sure for that hour that I'm rehearsing, I'm fully into that rehearsal. I'm not multitasking and doing other things. And then when it's time to actually give that talk, I'm, I'm fully present in the moment. I'm blocking out all of the distractions. Anything else that's going on in my world, I try to block it out. Uh, for the time that I'm giving that talk so that I can deliver the best service, message, what have you, to that group. So being present and being where my feet are is the goal. It's something I'm proud to say that I'm getting better at, but but far from mastering. I, I love that because 
it's so easy today to get caught up in what's next, especially, you know, we just talked about when we met, you were really launching off into your corporate speaking career. It's hard not to keep looking down the road at at what's ahead, what's ahead versus being right there. Um, And one of the great examples that you've displayed, not only telling us about it, but seeing it is getting to watch uh, some of your posts online from the recent event, uh, the Hill Run that you did. Yes. And the fact that you brought your kids to that with you to see it and be a part of it, that whole experience. Um, I absolutely love that. And, And I think from a mental challenge standpoint, that experience has to be one that not only did it push your limits uh, mentally because it it sounded like it was a grind, but your kids got to see that and got to see you push through those things that hopefully inspires them when they're older to do the same. For sure. That that was brutal. And it was it's called Hell on the Hill. And there's a gentleman named Jesse Itzler who I've really admired and been infatuated with from afar for a long, long time. I've had several people tell me uh, what, a, what a unique and innovative and brilliant and kind and generous guy he was. And, and that's something that, you know, I, I kind of have, I don't have too many bucket lists, especially of material items. You know, I have a few places I'd like to travel in the world. Most of my bucket list items are on people that I'd like to meet. And <clears throat> Jesse Itzer was at the top of that list for a long, long time. And finally had an opportunity to meet him uh, at a retreat up in his house. And just to, to give you some background, I mean, uh, this guy is a serial entrepreneur. He's He created Marquee Jet and sold that. He brought Zico coconut water to the U.S. and sold that to Coca-Cola. Uh, he's a minority owner with the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, and funny enough, his wife is Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. Uh, who is the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world. So quite a power couple. And so having an opportunity to go speak at his retreat in Connecticut a few weeks ago was life-altering. I mean, one, I finally got the chance to meet somebody that I'd been idolizing from afar for a while, and he exceeded my expectations. As great as everyone said he was, he was even better in person, one of the best people I've ever met. And what was so fascinating about him is he just doesn't believe in limits. I mean, this guy has done some crazy stuff. I mean, he's run 100-mile races. Uh, I mean, he, he's really pushed the envelope of what the physical and mental can do. So he started this thing called Hell on the Hill, which was to raise money for charity. And he has a 40-yard hill in his backyard with a 40% incline. So that thing is super steep. And the goal is to run 100 reps, 100 times up and down this brutal hill. And if you do that, he and his wife donate $1,000 in your name to the charity of your choice. So to give you an idea of how generous he and Sarah are, there were 70 of us running. All 70 people completed the hill. So that's $70,000 that he was donating to a variety of different charities, uh, which was really cool. But uh, it took me four hours to finish that. I was actually one of the last people to finish. And the only time I stopped to take a break was to change socks and change shirt at about the 70 mark. Because uh, I was soaking wet, so I mean that's four hours of continuously running up and down a hill, and I'm not an endurance athlete, so yes, <laughs> that absolutely pushed the physical and the mental. Uh, I wanted to bring my kids to be a part of it because I wanted them to be around such positive people. Everyone there was extremely supportive and uplifting. Uh, my kids did several of the hills with me, so it was really a, a positive experience. But you know, since I'm fortunate enough to have opportunities to go do special things like this. Uh, I want to bring my kids to as many of them as possible so that uh, they see that these aren't just things that I preach about. These are things that other people live as well and, and can model for my children. So they're finally at an age 
where they can go to these things and stay somewhat engaged and entertained. You know, a couple of years ago, they were so young, you know, I would have needed a babysitter to be there with them. But now that they're older, I can start bringing them to some of these things. And uh, it's important for me because as a father, I know that in a handful of years when they're teenagers, they're probably not going to listen to me a whole lot. They're going to just think, oh, I'm just dumb old dad. What does he know? Uh, so I'm going to need to lean on some other people to be positive influences and to pour into my own children. So I want to start establishing some of those uh, relationships now. Man, that's awesome. And I love that about Jesse and Sarah. I actually just finished on uh, my recent trip, his book, Living with a Seal, uh, and the story of him and David Goggins and and just it's pretty amazing, isn't it? it? It's such a great read. I actually recommended it to like five people yesterday at the gym. Oh, of like, good. You've got to read this. Short, easy read, but just crazy from that standpoint of getting outside your comfort zone and, and what we're actually capable of. Um, and I think it was you that I learned of the, the 29029 uh, that he's got going on in October. Yes. Um, obviously, with a torn Achilles, I'm out this year, but we and myself and two other buddies have already been planning time and budget uh, for that mountain ascent uh, just for the three-day experience to see what kind of we're capable of. Yeah, man, that thing is going to be awesome. And I, I have, I've signed up for it and, you know, on one hand, and this is a good thing. I'm a little, I'm a little intimidated by it. I'm a little scared. I mean, uh, from what I, so it's basically, he rented the entire Stratton mountain in Vermont and he's going to have a bunch of, uh, of tents, really nice tents set up at the bottom for folks to stay. But you have to scale this thing 17 times over the course of two and a half days, which would be the equivalent of climbing Mount Everest. Uh, so it's about 1.2 miles to the top. Uh, I don't know the exact grade. Obviously, I'm sure it varies. Uh, but from what I've been told uh, from the guy that's that's helping direct it, for the average person, someone like myself who's not an endurance athlete, who's not a mountain climber by trade, uh, you, you go up the mountain and then you take the gondola back down. And he said it'll take about an hour round trip, that it's a good 30 to 40 minutes to power walk up this thing and then take the gondola back down. So uh, I'm certainly no math major or accountant, but that's 17 hours of, of going up and down a mountain over the course of a weekend. So I just look at it as my four hours up and down hell on the hill was extremely challenging, borderline excruciating. So I'm just, while I've got some momentum, I'm just going to level up and, and jump into something much bigger and, and uh, give that thing a try. But uh, I'm, I'm preparing more for this one. I'm training for this one. I didn't, I didn't train for Hell on the Hill. I only found out about it a week before. So that's probably one of the reasons that it, it kicked my butt so much. But this one, you know, I've got, uh, I think about 10 weeks left to train and we'll certainly, you know, have a protocol in place to, uh, to scale this mountain. But if nothing else, Climbing the actual mountain is only a portion of what the weekend's about. I mean, it's about camaraderie. It's about being around other like-minded people that don't put limits on themselves. It's it's meeting new people from all different areas of life and different belief systems and different vocations and different ages. And it's men and it's women. And it'll just be very uplifting. And you know, I'm going there with the goal to finish without question. But regardless, I know I'm going to form some tremendous relationships and have a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So uh, this is not one that I feel appropriate to bring my children to. It's it's a little bit too much because uh, I mean that's that's going to be a lot. But um, yeah, I'm I'm super excited for it and and 
yeah, we're, we're going to see. I'll, I'll make sure I check in with you after and see how that thing went. Yes, uh, you probably need to strap in a GoPro or two for your runs up the, the mountain and back down. I'm sure it's going to be uh, – you're going to have a heck, of a, a heck of a view for the chances that you're actually getting a look around and, and see on the ascent. You'll get plenty for of sure. opportunities up and down that mountain. Alan, it, It's going to be crazy. This, is, uh, this has been a lot of fun. I, I love the fact – just the be present, the pushing yourself and doing the basic stuff when nobody's watching, doing them well, executing. That's something everybody listening can take away from. Man, this has been an enjoyable show. If people want to connect with you, you've got your speaking and website, you've got your own podcast, you're active on social media. What is the best way for people to find you and get connected with you? Um, I'm at Alan Stein Jr. on all social platforms. And yeah, the website's at uh, com as well. Um, certainly, I'm, I love being on social. I love learning from other folks. I love engaging. I love sharing information. So, you know, if any of your listeners are on social, uh, please connect or follow or reach out. Uh, if there's anything else that I can do to serve them, I'd love to. And if you don't mind, can I tell you one more yeah. real quick story about Hell on the Hill? Dude, so, yeah. Steve Wojciechowski that was uh, yeah. he played at Duke and then was an assistant at Duke and is now the head coach at Marquette. And he and I have been friends for a long time and someone I just have tremendous respect and admiration for. I, I think he's one of the grittiest college basketball players in the last 25 years uh, and got more out of his natural born talent than almost any other player I can think of. And he was doing hell on the hill as well. And, you know, his grit really came out. It's, it's funny. He was with me. We were two of the last guys to finish, which is kind of funny. We're both college athletes and we're struggling to finish something that a lot of other folks did fairly easily. But talking about this concept of play, play, play present and live present, he said something while we were on the hill that I mean, it gave me goosebumps. We were, I had done about 70, 71 at the time, and I was kind of coming up to him as we were going down the hill, and I wasn't sure how many he'd done. So I said, Hey, coach, you know, uh, how many more do you have? And I figured we were about at the same pace. And he said, I've only got one more. I was like, How could that be? He goes, I've got one more 30 times. And it just, it made me realize that his focus was all I got to worry about is doing one more rep. I don't need to worry about 30 of them. That's overwhelming. I just need to focus on going up this hill one more time. And then when I get to the top of the hill, I just have to focus on doing it one more time. And if I can do that 30 consecutive times, I'll be done. But here I am in my mind, I'm thinking, oh God, I got 30 more of these or 29 or whatever it was. And he just said, man, I got one more. And then I'm going to do that 30 times. So I just, I really thought that epitomized the concept of living in the now, staying focused. And it, it was, it was a very basic mindset, but something I'll never forget. Awesome, dude. That And that's right in line actually with a couple of our <laughs> recent episodes. We, we love to share the approach of day one and taking it, you know, this is day one, regardless of what happened yesterday, everybody's got the energy, the intensity for the first day, whether it's a new fitness journey, a new health program, you're starting a new job. You've always got that. And so we, we try to hit that approach of daily. And I, and I was just talking because I had to have one of those kind of check me moments because I was similar to you. I was looking at my rehab on my Achilles and was like, man, I got 12 weeks. I've got oh, yeah. to be on crutches forever. And then had to force myself to say, no, this is day one of, of 84 and tomorrow is yep. day one of 83. And then I'm just going to take it a day at a time because I, I can't control those future dates. Um, so I, lo I love hearing that story. Wojo was one of my favorite college basketball players to watch. And I'll never, ever forget his, his floor slams 
when he oh, used to yeah. beat the floor. And I, I laugh because people will be like, who? And I'm like, listen, I, I, this was like 90s, loved watching uh, some Duke basketball. I, I mean, I grew up 90s, 2000s, loving watching Coach K's teams. Uh, and Wojo was always one of those guys um, that inspired me as a, a short 5'11 white guy to play basketball. <laughs> Exactly, man. Yeah, he's the best. And he's he's taken all of that, that same grit and leadership and everything that made him special as a player and is really doing a tremendous job at Marquette. Dude, that's awesome. Alan, man, thanks so much for joining the show. We will have links to all your social media and your website on the show notes. Uh, people listening, definitely reach out, say hi. You've got to follow this guy for some inspiration, uh, for learning how to be a better leader uh, and just a better individual that is striving for more. Alan, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you, brother. That's it for another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. I I appreciate you as a listener. I appreciate each member of the Compete community, and I'm glad that you tuned in this week, and hopefully you found some value in what we shared and who we brought on and just all the types of content we're out sharing. So if you got feedback, like I said, shoot us a note directly to podcast at competeeveryday.com. Connect with us on social media. Say hi. Tell us you found the podcast. We love connecting with new members of the community. We want to welcome you. Uh, We want to find ways to connect you and equip you with ways that you can be better than yesterday. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.